It's good to be with everyone this morning. You may have noticed that we only sang one song. We did not forget or mess up. We have made an adjustment to the order of service because this is the final sermon closing out a series called What God Wants. And so if we are asking together, what does God want? We probably should not conclude the service with the preacher speaking. Let's let God speak to close the service. And so we've moved some of those songs to the end. Uh, I'm going to preach for a while. We're going to look together at God's Word, and then we're going to close out this series with worship, which I think is the most appropriate way to finish. So What God Wants has been a series where we have asked, what does God want for community church? As the new pastors come in, there is maybe some temptation or desire from this new pastor to accomplish all those things and expectations, and there's maybe some hope and desire from you for what might happen in this next new chapter, but ultimately we are surrendering many of those things and asking, what do you want for us, God? If we're asking that question, that means that for some of us, if not all of us, there needs to be an expression of humility, something we are willing to set down that's our own thing. I'm doing that, and I hope that as we conclude this, each of us are willing to set aside one thing or two things, whatever it is that the Holy Spirit would ask that's our personal agenda for the benefit of God's agenda. So we began with God wants holiness and glory. And that's not because he lacks holiness and glory, so maybe the better word is that God desires holiness and glory. Last week, God desires fruitfulness, and this week, God desires multiplication. Now, you may not believe me, but I did not know today was Multiplication Sunday when we planned the series. I'm just saying, that's crazy that that worked out that way. If you have your Bibles, let's look together at Matthew 28. Matthew 28, verses 18 through what I'm going to call 20a, which is the first half of verse 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I'm going to go ahead and finish that. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Lord, we come before you this morning, and we are in the midst of a a roller coaster, a storm. We don't know what to call this, but this day and age right now just feels crazy and stressful. And we gather together because that's what we are supposed to be doing. That's what we believe to be right. And even as we're trying to listen to you, Holy Spirit, our hearts and our minds are distracted. Because there are so many challenges and opinions and thoughts 
politically, in our health, socially, and yet we can't meet every week and talk about COVID. Lord, help us to hear you this morning. We want to listen, and we really, really want to hear what it is that you want. So I, I give over myself to you, God. I give you my voice, and I ask that you would cleanse me of any personal message here and help to give us your message. Help each of us to hear what you want to say. Amen. Matthew 28 is uh, the multiplication verse. That, that, that section there, the Great Commission, I mean, you know that I came out of the missionary world. I've been to more missionary conferences and missionary weekends than you can imagine. And the number of those where I was asked to speak or where Jade was asked to speak and the passage we were given was Matthew 28, go to the nations. It makes sense. Uh, the passage is the right passage to choose. Um, but maybe it's not as simple as that passage. Because there's an awful lot that happened before that. Multiplication is not merely the last thing in the book. There was a whole book. Multiplication happened long before that statement. So what we're talking about this morning is basically how do we arrive at that statement? I could stand here before you and say, go to the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet, if we've missed out on the first 27 and a half chapters, that doesn't mean a whole lot. It's almost just words. So I, I want to share with you my personal experience. We're going to get back into Scripture here very quickly, but I just want to reflect on how the last portion of Matthew 28 makes me feel. The process of multiplication. It is a logistically complex endeavor. And I see it in four, I don't know what to call them. Four, they're kind of phases or stages, but at times they overlap. The first one is recruitment. And recruitment happened in my life before I, long before I was born. I was recruited way before I was born. Here's why. If any of you were ever freshman male or you knew what the freshman dorm was at IWU, it was called Bowman Hall. That's my great-grandfather, Dr. Alan Bowman. He was a professor there and an administrator for 40 years. And then he had children, and one of those children was named Alberta, and she was an author. And she married a man named Floyd, who was a Wesleyan reverend. And they had three children who are currently a nun, a missionary, and a pastor. And my dad is the pastor, Reverend Daniel Metz. I was recruited a long time before I was born. 
This is the family line into which I was born. And so Brookhaven Wesleyan Church, I'm born into this church. It looks a lot like your old sanctuary. I don't know what was happening back then. Some group of people went around and just built a whole bunch of Wesleyan churches that looked the same. So we had the same sanctuary. And as we grew, we built an addition. Then we grew again and we built an addition much like this and turned that into the children's wing. So we all also had the same idea. Well, in the old sanctuary in 1982 or probably 82, I was dedicated as a baby in that sanctuary, in that old sanctuary. Then I grew up and my father was a pastor and we went from church to church. And then when I was married, we went back to Brookhaven and uh, I led worship there and I preached there. But everybody knew the family line that I came from and that I was dedicated there and these are my people. And so I stood before my old Sunday school teachers preaching. Similar thing happened in the very first place that I preached. I rem my father preached at Farville Community Church for 15 years and uh, then moved on to Cincinnati. Well, during that time, I had a, a rebellious stage where I remember sitting in the pew and looking at him and just rejecting that. I, I remember thinking in my head, I will never do what he is doing. And that was the first pulpit I ever preached behind. I know what it is to be recruited. Because this church has good people and you've had good leadership and you've been here a while, you are seeing generational success. You're seeing that there are young people who have gone to your Sunday school classes and they've come up and they preached last night, didn't they? And did an awesome job. There is both a success and a pressure that for those who have been raised in your environment, they feel a sense of recruitment. The same applies to those who have been outside and lived a really hard life and then because of your ministry, they have experienced a great salvation and life transformation. They also feel a kind of recruitment like now, I have my potential that I'm showing to the congregation and we have that back at them. Look at the transformation in your life. You're recruited. What's going to happen next? The second phase or part, uh, something that we experience after recruitment is expectation, anticipated value. Now that you're recruited, we have an expectation of you. And this is um, felt by the recruit as a kind of weight something to measure up to. I felt that. And unfortunately, I didn't deal with that very well because I was born and raised in this uh, recruitment pipeline and I felt expectation. I carried that as a kind of obligation. It didn't come out of me, it came from behind me and it, it sat on my shoulders. And so people would come up and they don't know the decisions that I'm making in my life and the disinterest that I might have or the struggle in my faith and what did that feel like, the expectation of my recruitment when they said, you know, I knew your grandfather. Let me tell you a story. Oh, 
They were trying to connect with me and honor me. And the way I processed that was expectation that I was now burdened under the weight of someone else's life. And so I moved from recruitment to expectation, and then I moved into a new phase, which sometimes they overlap, and that was progress, proof of value. You have been recruited, now there's an expectation, and out of that expectation, you need to make progress. If it takes too long, though, we do tend to lose interest. So we say, go and give us proof. Go into the nations and give us proof that what we have expected of you because of your recruitment was all correct. And that feels very, very heavy. Multiplication is complex. It's challenging. And it finishes with a readiness. So Zach Morgan stands before us as an excellent example of this, someone who's recruited. We have expectations of him. He then needs to prove his progress and reach a place of readiness so that we believe he's worth the investment. <laughs> this, is, this is not a great feeling well, so far about Multiplication Sunday, is it? It's awfully heavy. It's awfully complex. I'm just standing here before you today saying, I know the full weight of multiplication. I know the full burden of multiplication, the responsibility of multiplication, to stand before a group of people who have known me since I was born, who have known my father and my grandfather, and for some of you, even my great-grandfather, and now I am the next generation expected to represent you and multiply to the nations so that I can come back and report. Do you remember Matthew 28? I did it. What I have learned is that if I look carefully over the course of my life, there have been two kinds of people. One is what I just described to you. You are recruited. We have expectations. Out of those expectations, we expect progress. If you are showing enough progress, you are now ready. You are worth our investment. Multiplication carries risk. We now feel confident in taking that risk. However, there was a second kind of person in my life. And it's the second kind of person who kept me from being crushed. This kind of person followed more closely Jesus' model, which is dramatically different from what I just described to you. So now let's open the Bible to Mark. It should be simple. On my Bible here, I see on the left page is Matthew 28, and if I just move to the right page, I see Mark chapter 1. So we move from recruitment to inclusion. From recruitment to inclusion. Recruitment means that there is uh, some reason why I believe that you may have the capacity or potential for expectation, progress, 
and, and readiness. Re- inclusion is, don't we all have that? Aren't we all included in this? Now, this is a radically different approach. And if you look at the way that Jesus treats people in Mark 1, let's read, beginning in verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, that's not recruitment. That's just existence. Look at the qualifications that Jesus expects of them. Who is he looking for? When we recruit, we have a set of criteria or characteristics that we're looking for in a person. We find the person that fills those characteristics and we recruit them. Now, based on that idea, what characteristics is Jesus looking for? What I see is, as Jesus walked, characteristics have been fulfilled. You could almost say that if the story were to have begun two minutes later, Jesus would have just picked the next person on the beach. To Jesus, everyone is Simon. As Jesus walked, he saw a person, and that person was good enough. We don't see any other description of criteria there. When he'd gone a little farther, he did the same thing again. He saw Criteria fulfilled. This idea of seeing and including is a massive shift. When we as a congregation move from recruitment to inclusion, our language begins to change. I was born in a home with a mother that said every day, Nathan, you have so much potential. Every day of my life I heard that, and it didn't matter how big my, my error was. It didn't matter whether I was measuring up to what I thought people expected of me. My mom said, Nathan, you have so much potential. I have a, a mentor named Paul Garverick. Some of you, he actually pastored in, this, in the Ohio area for a while. And one time we were sitting together at lunch and he sensed something in my demeanor. And he put down his silverware and he moved his tray to the side and he leaned forward across the table and he looked me in the eyes and he said, Nathan, I value you. I treasure you. I respect you. Do you believe that? Do you know what that feels like to have someone speak that way over me? And do you know why he said that? Because I was sitting there. He talks like that to everybody. 
Paul Garvrick is a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit and walking with Jesus Christ. And so if you sit with him or you spend time with him, he'll look you in the eyes and say, I value you. I treasure you. You are worthy. You are worth something to me. He's not recruiting. He's including. There is an internal dialogue that people carry into our church, and those of us who are here, some of us may have that dialogue, and that dialogue is, I can't. I can't. That's too hard. I'm not skilled in that area. I can't. And what we see from Jesus is a verbal, you can. You can. And I believe that of everyone here, sometimes All people need is for one of us to look them in the eyes and say, you can. I believe in you. You have nothing to prove to me before I say to you, you are valuable and you can. Simon had proved nothing to Jesus when he walked up and said, yep. Walks up to someone else, yep. And he just picks them because everybody's included. So we move from recruitment to inclusion, and we move from expectation to imagination. Now, what a bizarre statement. Come follow me, and who is he speaking to? Fishermen. And I will send you out to fish for people. He's using language they understand, but this is imagination. That doesn't make any sense. I know what fishing is and I know what people are, but I've never seen the hook go down and catch a man in the mouth. I've seen a man get caught in the mouth with a hook, though. (laughs) (laughs) But that's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is, I understand your situation and I understand where we are going and I can imagine the connection between those two places. This is one of the more powerful things that we can do for people. It's one of the more powerful things that have ever happened in your life, whether you have recognized it, that it's happened or not. Because there have been people in your life who have imagined for you. And imagination is not about delusion or pretending or manipulating. It's about imaging We do this when we see young children and you look at a a group of them and one of them is showing all the others what to do and how to do it. One of them is making up the game and the rules. Are you with me? And you look at that one and you imagine the leader that they will become. And so it changes our behavior. We begin treating this one like the leader. Even at five, six, seven years old, we notice that the room is out of control and we have to choose one. So we go to the one and say, will you help me get these kids together? From five or six years old, we've seen a little something. We've imagined something massive out of that and we've used that imagination to begin to change the system. Jesus does this with grown adults. We can do this with grown adults. There are people who have already been imagined over. You're worth nothing. You'll go nowhere in life. Many of us have heard these kinds of things. That's imagination. What a disappointment you have become. What a failure. That's imagination. 
when the things that have happened in the past dictate what will happen in the future, that's imagination. We can imagine differently. We need and want for people to imagine differently for us. In fact, if you have been beaten down and people have said to you what you can and cannot do, you right now are feeling a desperation that someone will come and imagine something differently for your life. Will someone see something in me higher than what everyone else sees? Will someone see something better in me than even what I see in me? And that is what is so refreshing refreshing about Jesus, that he comes into our lives and imagines something higher. It's okay if it's not realized in this moment, but if we don't imagine something better for tomorrow, we'll never realize anything differently today. Tomorrow will look just like today did. You don't need to prove anything to me because I'm not recruiting you. You were already included. And my expectations for you are not dictated by your past, they are imagined into your future. He, he does this by nicknaming people. Let's look forward actually into uh, Mark 3. Jesus went up on a mountainside, this is in verse 13, and he called to them who wanted him, those who wanted, and they came to him. He appointed the twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Two chapters earlier, they're fishing. He's giving them authority to drive out demons. Jesus has an imagination. The 12 he appointed are Simon, to who he gave the name Peter. Here's a fisherman, and he calls him a rock. James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John... To them, he gave the nickname Sons of Thunder. My goodness, nickname or master. Do you know what it, have you had anybody in your life that nicknames you like that? Nicknames you in a high way? Nicknames you up? What would it feel like if we were really to nickname each other like Sons of Thunder? It makes you want to be a Son of Thunder. Where you feel like a Simon, you're just a fisherman, and somebody you respect comes along and calls you a rock. You want to be a rock. My grandmother called me Nate the Great. <laughs> Made me want to be great. There is a subtle, subtle adjustment in how we do this, and it is the freedom and boldness to speak to people in the present tense. Imagination in the present tense. You are. You are. Not you will be, you could be, you might be, you have the potential to be. Not you have been, you were, you once did, you are. I see the very highest version of you. I imagine over, I'm holding a great image and you are that. He did not say, you used to be really far from being Peter or you could one day become Peter. He said, you are Peter. Now, when we say you could be or you were, we are burdening. 
When we express an imagination in the present tense, that is a filling, boosting way of speaking to people. Don't be afraid. You're not pretending. Don't be afraid to speak present tense beauty into people. If someone is getting ready to do something, just say, you are great at that. You are doing a good job presently. Now, I'm going to follow with me for a second here because I want to show you the impact that this has. When you treat people in the present tense with a high imagination, the impact is drastic and it has ripple effects that are far beyond what we see. So the question is, how was their joy in Samaria? Samaria is always listed to us in the New Testament as this far off, not great place. It's not as respected. It's Samaria. But if we go to Acts chapter 8, we see that there was joy in Samaria. So the question to us is, how did joy go to Samaria? Well, I'll tell you. Joy went to Samaria because Philip preached in Samaria. That's what the Bible tells us. Well, why was Philip in Samaria? Philip was in Samaria because the church was scattered. Well, why was the church scattered? They were scattered because Stephen was killed. Why was Stephen killed? Because he preached boldly. Well, why did he preach boldly? Because he had a great leader in Peter. Well, why was Peter a great leader? Because Jesus called him Peter. When we look at multiplication as only sending out and not investing in, we cut short what's really needed. Jesus called him Peter and over time, that kind of investment deep into a person, imagining them up, had ripple effects that ended in scattering and joy in Samaria. If we just want to send to Samaria, we can do that. We can afford to do that. Or we can call a few Simons Peter and just watch it happen naturally. The city of Newark, the city of Heath, Help me out. I'm new here. What are some other cities? Utica. Just say them. They need your imagination. They're already getting your they're already getting imagination. This crushes me because there is so much pressure from families, from cultures, from broken systems that imagine horribly for people's lives and then they live into that terrible imagination and they find the church often to be just another imagination for them, another expectation. Live up to our standard. What if there were churches where as people come in already broken down, we imagine them up. And we really believe that into them. Those cities, our cities are full of people that need our imagination for them. Not expectation for today. And we're not recruiting you, you're just included. But we imagine something wonderful for you. Now the second movement is from progress to patience. 
we often blend together anointing and appointing, calling and sending. Many people, even throughout Scripture, are called and not yet sent, are anointed but not yet appointed. You recognize that from David and Saul? Just because someone is filled with energy and we're seeing movement in their life, it doesn't mean that they are yet ready. Give it time. There are some nearly bizarre situations where Jesus is bending over backwards to be patient with his disciples, not pushing them in progress. Let me show you one. Mark 2. Verse 16, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, who did they ask? They asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not health, not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. He jumped in front of them. Oh, 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 I got this. I've got this one. Relax. Patience. Jesus saw that it's not about progress, pushing them out in front and saying, well, stand up for yourself. Answer. You need to be able to prove your faith. He saw, oh, wait. I'm, I'm working with them. I'm being patient. And patience is not just about Oh, my word. All right, fine, let's wait. It's already been two years. Okay. Patience is about utilizing the time to create a sense of investment, to establish a place of health, and leave that alone. Let people sit in the health. That's what Jesus was doing. On and on and on. He creates these scenarios where he establishes the health and doesn't expect of them too early. That's hard for us. Just about the moment that someone walks into our church and shows any bit of interest, we give them something to do. Now there's a few of us that probably need something to do. There's a whole bunch of us that as we come in, we just need to be able to sit in the health so that we have a chance to grow and develop. Not always about progress, sometimes it's about patience. Mark 4 is actually the first time that he even addresses his 12 disciples. You see, from 1 all the way to 4, there are many interactions, and it's always Jesus and the other people with the disciples standing here. One time, the disciples came up and said, hey, there's a huge crowd of people who are here, and he says, okay, then we probably better leave. And he leaves, takes them with him. It's not until Mark 4 that he teaches the people and then they come up and say, what did that mean? Now we see him explain what it means. He's patient with them. Then we move from readiness to commissioning. Readiness says you need to prove that you are worth the risk. We're going to spend money on you. We're going to make announcements about you, and so therefore, if you do not succeed, we look bad because we made an announcement that you're being multiplied out. That's readiness. Commissioning is, you are going. And we say, well, wait a minute. Surely they were ready. 
Now, let's just look at it for a second. This is the full Great Commission, beginning in verse 16. Then the 11 disciples, 11, not 12. Do you remember he picked 12? And you remember why there's 11. That does not look very ready to me. Okay, so there's only 11 of them now. We're, we're down one. Went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When, he, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. We're already down one, and even for those who are still around, they, some of them are doubting. This doesn't look ready to me either. Multiplication is risk. It is a risk of faith. If we have to become so sure and confident and calculated in our multiplication, then it's not a lot of faith. It's a whole lot of planning. There is an element of risk in faith. Jesus could have stayed longer. Who decided that Jesus had to leave? God did. Well, did he mess up and leave too early? Now, I, I don't think so. Jesus decided now is the time, even though we're down one and some of the ones I have doubt. Are we comfortable sending out people who doubt? People who are down one? Multiplication is risk. It is a risk of faith. So, what does God want? God wants for his people to not merely gather in structures, to not merely follow schedules, but to be temples. Purified, holy temples capable of being vessels of the glory of God. Now, as that happens, we are connected to a vine. And the life of that vine comes through us and it begins to produce fruit. And what is the function of fruit? It's just a tasty seed wrapping. The purpose of fruit is to multiply. That's why the plant made the fruit, so that it will be more likely to scatter the seed. So we can't be fruit hoarders. We are joined at the vine, the fruit comes out and the function of the fruit is to distribute. And so we must be a place where people are included, imagined, we're patient with them as they grow, and then before they think they're ready, they're commissioned. This only works if we read the Great Commission correctly. Frequently you will read or hear read that it begins, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And if we are a church that thinks that is the Great Commission, we're in a bad place because there are bookends on this statement. He begins, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. That is behind. And he ends, 
and I surely am with you always to the very end of the age. That is before, behind and before. We are not doing this out of our own life, out of our own wit, out of our own resources, out of our own drive, out of our own need or lack or whatever. We are doing this because behind and before is the very presence of Christ. Out of our connection in the vine, there is a life which blooms into fruit and it will multiply. The people who come into our church, they will be nurtured. We will imagine high things for them. We will be patient with them. And we will commission them into their communities, into other states, into other nations around the world. That is what God wants for us. And therefore, that is what I want for us. Is that what you want for us? Amen. We're going to close together singing because we want to end with praise and worship. Let God have the final word. Let's stand together.